Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Adrian Davis, and joining me this week, uh, in place of Matt Risby, who is unfortunately uh, has been knocked over by pollen, uh, he's suffering from a very bad case of hay fever, is returning guest Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Hello Ed, grand. I mean, very sad that Matt can't be in my place because of pollen, that's grim. Mm. But yeah, hopefully I can yeah. I can fill his esteemed boots. Yeah, his esteemed pollen-ridden <laughs> boots. <laughs> so, uh, well, there's not a huge amount of news this week for once. Uh, I think the only major thing, I guess, was that thing to remake The Last Jedi, but that's a dumb story involving a lot of dumb people, so I don't think we need to give them the oxygen of publicity. No. Uh, just, just to say it's dumb and everyone should ignore it. So, but what we'll, so what we'll start off with uh, because uh, this is the you, you were last on in March, Emily, and I think it was March for Crazy Ex Girlfriend. It was, and yeah. It's now June, and um, so we're pretty much halfway through the year. Uh, I just thought it'd be fun to to check in with you about what movies and TV shows uh, you have really liked so far this year as we as we hit the halfway point. After the initial terror of realizing that we're halfway through the year. That that gradually subsides, and I think it's funny. In terms of film, I feel really behind because I have mainly been inside watching various different TV shows mm. this year. I, I think I was in the cinema a lot more in the run-up to Christmas than I yeah. have been this year. But I was fortunate enough to be in Sheffield Dockfest, and I saw an absolutely fantastic um, documentary called No Greater Law, which is... Mm-hmm all based around this group of Christian faith healers in Idaho and the pe- the local people trying to counteract what they're doing. And it's a perfect case study of how America's rights often clash. So if you're a fan mm. of uh, Wild Wild Country on Netflix, that's definitely one to go for. But I think for me, in terms of TV, the standout so far is uh, the assassination of Gianni Versace, American crime mm. story. It totally... I think in terms of storylining and how you tell a story, not necessarily from a linear perspective, but from what's most emotionally resonant at the time and how you Mm -hmm. drip feed certain parts of information to inform and, and, and let an audience make their own decisions and play with their expectations. I thought was absolutely fantastic. And I thought it looked incredible from this, like, Mm it's quite noir in terms of like how bleak and sunshine and yet neon it is all at once. The performances across the board were amazing. And I, and I think it's just an incredibly timely story to tell. So that is my standout still. Yeah. The, uh, Andrew Kukanen, is that his, his name? Yes. The lead. Andrew, Andrew Uh, Kukanen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, incredible performance. I thought, and Darren Chris uh, from Glee, who'd have thought? Yeah. Yeah, he was. Uh, I thought he was fantastic. I thought that, like you say, the the visuals were great. It it kind of felt to me like the talented Mr. Ripley, a, the TV show. Oh, like if yeah, someone yeah. had decided to take that movie and stretch it out to the length of a mini series, but you know, without all the flab or anything, it felt, despite being you know quite quite long and having a lot of contours and things to dig into, it never felt like it was overstaying its welcome. Totally. It also gave me um, just the appreciation 
of uh, that incredible John Mulaney SNL sketch of switcheroo where it's just mm-hmm. ever so slightly just thrown in there and slightly glossed over but little Andy Kunanan who plays the son <laughs> <laughs> which gave me a very grim laugh I have to say what about you Ed what about your highlights of the year so far uh well in terms of movies I think the one that really stands out and I also haven't been keeping up as much like uh, there's a lot of stuff i really want to catch up with which i just haven't had chance to but in terms of things that i i have so far been able to catch up on or got to see the first time uh annihilation the alex garland movie is the thing that really stands head and shoulders above everything for me i thought that was a visually and uh, uh and kind of like orally uh fantastic movie i thought it, it did a great job of creating this sense of an otherworldly feel and a sense uh, that as you watched it, that you yourself were kind of dissolving in the same way that all of the characters in it were yeah. as they kind of slowly lost their grip on their own sense of self. Uh, and I thought it was kind of unparalleled as like a, a vision of something genuinely ethereal and unnerving. I'm so jealous that you got to see it in the cinema in the States because mm. I still had that watching it in the normal home domestic situation, even with a tiny screen, it blew my mind. Mm. I feel like it's the closest thing that we've got to 2001 in the past five years, maybe. Although Mm. I adore Under the Skin, and I feel like there's a lot of crossover there as well in terms of putting humanity back in its place, perhaps. Yeah, it definitely feels... I think uh, Annihilation is is maybe slightly more story driven than Under the Skin, but certainly in terms of that, that the feeling they both give you of watching something and becoming slightly unmoored from uh, everyday human experience as you're watching it, uh, that there's not many films that really achieve that, at least not in recent memory. Mm, totally. So our main topic of discussion for this week is uh, long movies and uh, I I wanted to talk about this because uh, for two main reasons one was that I recently went to go and watch Akira Kurosawa's Ran on the big screen which was which was great it was a lovely restoration and it's a a brilliant movie that I hadn't seen ever on the big screen so it was great getting to see it and, and be able to appreciate you know his kind of like painterly compositions and everything but that is a movie that's like two hours 40 minutes long and flies by and it got me wondering about why a movie like that seems to go by so quickly when a lot of movies that are made this day these days which are of about the same length feel like they're largely wasting everyone's time by being that long but also uh, kind of uh, a frequent sentiment that i see expressed expressed on twitter from film writers is whenever they see the length running time for a new movie anytime a new movie clocks in with a running time around about the 90 minute mark you can guarantee that there'll be a lot of people just being like oh thank god and like (laughs) being happy to sit and watch a movie that kind of gets in and gets out and is over and done with in what seems like a a reasonable time uh and so so i guess where we're we're starting from is the perception that movies are now getting longer than they have been in the the past and i think that's kind of the popular contrarian view on twitter that i have definitely been party to which is i immediately feel 
more inclined to like a film if I look on IMDb before it's released and it's 90 minutes or under by far Mm. because I think my very this is where my snobbishness lies it's like if you have a story to tell you can tell it in 90 minutes and any any time you run over 90 minutes you have to justify every single second but it's not to Mm. say that I don't love films that have essentially a long running time because you look at something like the deer hunter and in terms of duration that is a long film but in terms of what it covers the pace of it is breakneck Mm. yeah and uh, to go back to 2001 which we mentioned earlier you know that's a movie that's around two and a half hours long and it takes you from the birth of humanity until it's kind of evolution into a previously unseen form and you kind of figure like if a movie wants to kind of take if if a movie wants to tell a story in a similar length of time a similar length of time then they've really got to justify that expenditure when you can see what kubrick did with the same uh running time and kind of uh, a space to play with space in every sense of the word i think i think Mm. there's that old maxim which is attributed to hitchcock which is you have to consider the endurance of the human bladder yeah (laughs) but hitchcock was an abuser so fuck him Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you know there is still a certain sense of i think i strongly believe from my limited but helpful training in script development is I think we all have a certain Cacadian rhythm for stories that we've mm. come to expect that somehow, like grammar with language, we just get what fits in what boxes and what doesn't. And yet that doesn't restrict your creativity. There's just certain things that work and make sense and other things that lead to more confusion than mystery. And I think if you're able to tap into and kind of court and guide people, your audience through that sense of rhythm then you can really begin to play with it because i'm not against a long film in the slightest i mean i love tv series but Mm. there was that not to go right back into our twin peaks podcast but there was that discussion towards the end of last year that was like twin peaks is the best film of Mm. uh, the year and then there was this kind of unhelpful and I think a little bit circular argument in terms of TV and film like to me it was on TV it's a TV series it's a TV series um, mm. and TV series can look very beautiful in a cinematic way without necessarily being cinema so I'm I'm yeah. in for the long haul but if you overstretch a certain premise or scenes where nothing ostensibly happens then I'm I'm out, yeah. Mm, or even if you do kind of have scenes going long, if they create a certain mood whilst doing so, because I think of, you know, uh, Twin Peaks, The Return, you know, there's that scene of the guy sweeping up the bar uh, for the entire duration of the soul song that's playing on it, and that doesn't really add anything to the story, but you do kind of feel like, this is creating a sense of unease and mood and just the fact that you're being forced to sit and watch it does make you start to wonder why is this here and what is it trying to make me think it's still imbued with significance that might be that you have to kind of sit around and wait a little bit longer to see it but you realize it starts to become annoying and then funny and then absurd and then a bit sinister (laughs) in very Mm. like and that just sort of repeats 
and it's still there I think it's just so heavy with significance like everything in Twin Peaks is there for a reason even if that reason is not clear to anyone and I I love those scenes because I think a scene for me essentially has to further the plot reveal something about character or establish or develop a theme and if it doesn't if it doesn't do any of those things it shouldn't be on screen and that that scene with the broom as an example it's thematic and it it manages to function in terms of building and releasing tension all at once like it's a really curious Mm. little thing and i and i love it for that but it's not nothing yeah yeah if you compare that in in terms of the essential nothingness of a lot of very long movies now i think and and these are kind of like my go-to examples of movies that are just far 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 too long are the transformers movies the michael bay uh what's five sunk sunk tet of (laughs) movies yeah uh, where they are all except for the first one longer than two and a half hours but if you were yeah if you were to boil down their constituent parts so much of every single film comprises of just long, noisy action sequences, which don't really add anything to the story being told. They're just there to kind of be eye candy and destruction and not even particularly uh, passable uh, uh, eye candy because it's all, you know, kind of heavily cut and it's all these visually indistinct uh, robots fighting each other and smashing up cities. Whereas, and you can, there's a very easy case to be made that if you cut an hour out of each of those movies most of which would be just like action scenes that don't advance the plot or say anything about theme or anything those movies wouldn't be good but at least they would be uh, they would feel a little more acceptable uh, as like trash entertainment which is what they are it's not just that they are trash it's that they are trash that forces you to use up two and a half hours of your life to watch them yeah there's a bit more in terms of like structure or technical thought put into it rather than just the editor had to be on holiday so we just put everything stitched it together as much as we could and I think that's it like editing is so essential to Mm. cinema and I think it's so often overlooked and part of it where it succeeds is where you can overlook it but when it doesn't really seem to be apparent at all I mean Michael Bay Michael Bay loves a running time He's kind of the equivalent of like a 32 ounce drink in America. Why would you want yeah. that much? Like, <laughs> but at the same time, you get essentially value for your money, even though you're never going to mm. be able to stomach most of it. Because the, the big one for me was Pearl Harbor, because that's over yeah. three hours by about three minutes. But still, like it's, it's a long film, universally panned. And mm. yet it, it shouldn't, everyone's giving it their all in that and you could easily cut maybe half of it. <laughs> yeah. But then you look at something like Lord of the Rings and how much was cut from the original books and yet everything that is in the Fellowship of the Ring, for example. And yeah, there's, there's you know, the joy of the extended editions for the fans who want that little bit more. But I don't think anyone would disagree that actually those first theatrical releases were the best ones to put in a cinema Mm. yeah they were certainly the ones that i mean certainly the first one was the one that really set the world on fire in terms of making people fall in love with that world and those characters and it did so because even though at three hours it was very long certainly at the time because 
before like Lord of the Rings as a, as a trilogy was really a game changer in persuading studios that you could and and distributors that you could show very very long movies and people would go and watch them a bunch of times and that they were a sound investment because I think for a long time prior to that there was this sense that if a movie wanted to be that kind of long and epic it had to be a titanic or you know mm. it's it's imitators like Pearl Harbor you know a big sweeping epic that people will that that you know is kind of like a rarity in a big swing but you know occasionally one will come along or a brave heart which i think is also maybe not quite three hours but it was certainly fairly long and what lord of the rings did was it essentially said that oh no it doesn't have to just be this stuff that is considered kind of like high class you know or or is kind of like prestige oscar baity stuff it can be works of populist high art or high fantasy and you know, without the Lord of the Rings, which were all very good movies that all justified being as long as they were because they were telling a story with all of these characters across all of these different worlds and each thread was kind of balanced very, very well by Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh and Philip O'Boyens and every aspect of it was just so well done. It's kind of a shame that it then augured in, like, your Pirates of the Caribbeans, where they were just oh, kind of God, like, yeah. okay, people will happily sit and watch these. And also, I think something, uh, uh, the rise of digital projection kind of comes into this as well. You know, the fact that it's, you don't need to order a bunch of expensive prints in order to show a movie on multiple screens at once. You know, if you have a DCP, you can show it on, like, several screens at the same time. So there have been these big structural changes that happened partly because of Lord of the Rings and partly separate from it, which have allowed for people to think, oh, it's fine to release a superhero movie that's two and a half hours long, regardless of whether or not it kind of justifies that investment of time. Yeah, because I do think there's that um, idea of, well, I, re I remember the sort of real rise of films that I felt seemed to take forever um, mm. was about 2011 onwards. And it it, yeah. it seemed to be sort of like gone with the wind style esteem and stature. Like th these were incredibly important and they had long stories to tell and they would take their time telling them because apparently length means nuance, but size isn't everything. And the, <laughs> I think it sort of dovetailed along with the idea that attention spans are getting shorter and it was like, well, mm. well, what is it then? Like, we've we've got phones and we can't watch stuff on the internet for more than seven minutes on YouTube. And yet the cinema was like, come here. We have hours and hours worth of entertainment for your ever-increasing ticket price to actually get mm. into the cinema. Um, and for me, like, the thing that crystallizes it for me is uh, 2012, where you had the release of Lincoln, Mm -hmm. two and a half hours long and abraham lincoln vampire hunter also 2012 <laughs> one hour 45 minutes right sure now i mean it strikes me that what you're saying about 2001 it's two and a half hours long but you kind of stretch from the dawn of man through to a psychedelic is it future is it a different dimension the fact that 2001 mm -hmm. actually is all about time i think makes it worth its duration at least it's it's playing with the very concept of sitting there and watching something that appears to be linear but is actually darting around in various different states of being. Lincoln, not so much. Lincoln spends two and a half hours 
with a lot of reverence and in the really heavy sort of Aaron Sorkin style kind of hemming and hawing and I think Lincoln would have been an absolutely amazing miniseries but as a film there was very little that I felt actually changed or moved there wasn't like a sense of obstacle it was more how did Lincoln change I couldn't really get that I still haven't I watched it in the cinema admittedly I had a few drinks when I went in and then I had several more as I pertain to watch it but I just thought I'm I'm bored as sin and this has Tommy Lee Jones in it and I've never been so bored in a film with Tommy Lee Jones in it not even he could save it and then you look at something like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter which is a more alternative take on his personal history and that spans a a great time it's still a bit too long for the kind of film that it is but it's Mm. endlessly more entertaining (laughs) than the film that is seemingly endless and yet accurate and worthy. And it doesn't matter how good Daniel Day-Lewis is. It doesn't matter how many amazing people are in it. It doesn't matter how accurate it is to me. The problem is, is that it's it's length. To me, it, it absolutely epitomizes that kind of Oscar-baiting, heavy, worthy, superior. It's like, well, oh, you know, you, you don't have the intellect if you can't, stick with this for two and a half hours and it's like no i i just really want to go to bed I've, i feel like i've been in the cinema for all my life yeah i i i'll defend lincoln a little bit because i did enjoy it when i watched it but i think that what i enjoyed about it is that the thing that tony kushner seemed to be trying to do with the script was to try and create something that almost felt a little bit like you know, certainly when you look at like all the stuff with uh, like James Bra- James Spader and Tim Blake Nelson, you know them kind of going around trying to persuade people to vote for the Thirteenth Amendment and stuff. They, he's trying to do something that almost feels kind of like a caper or a heist or something. Like he's laying mm. out all this stuff. How how do we go about making this this law pass and everything like that? But it's the length of it hurts it in that regard because then it feels like it has to swell to fill this sense of you know its own sense of importance and worth and worthiness. And I always, I've always felt that Lincoln, whilst I, it's a, like a very handsome movie and it's a movie that I, I do find enjoyable, if it was two hours, hour 50, and it was more focused on like the actual minutiae of how exactly they managed to kind of get this bill pushed through by hook or by crook and the amendment passed, then it would probably be a more satisfying movie but because it's like being pushed as a big oscar play you can't really do that in the same way uh when you know it's it's very limited focus in terms of most big oscar biopic movies would suggest that you know you don't need it to be two and a half hours long completely and if you're actually looking to woo the academy why would you have a screener that's two and a half hours long? I guess the mm. idea is like, oh, well, you watch the first 20 minutes maybe and then watch everything else. I don't know. Like, and I don't want to completely shit on Lincoln. I mean, Tommy <laughs> Lee Jones is in it. Um, but it. I, the thing is, is that I love Tony Kushner's writing. And if you mm. look at something like Angels in America which is notorious yeah. and, uh, as it's had its most recent run and it's been split into two parts. and Well, it's always been split into two parts, which are very heavy. And then the HBO adaptation as well, 
but at the same time like you you absolutely race through an ensemble cast and you successfully manage to touch and develop on so many different issues everyone is so lean and dense in terms of their writing which is what I appreciate the most it's like you don't have to see a lot for a character to reveal themselves but you do need something of significance and I was really yes. excited when Lincoln was brought up that Tony Kushner was was writing it's like brilliant I'm in for a great time and then I was just so desperately disappointed because it didn't seem to have that actual it seemed not only too long but kind of out of touch with the reality of the day I think it just felt there was no tension in it for me it felt too much of a foregone conclusion and I think mm. if it's if it was two and a half hours of a little bit more than people talking in rooms and, and bureaucracy and the war still going on it's just amazing that you can have that much stuff that is that contentious that is that you know formative in terms of a country's history and yet to me it just felt flat the whole way through mm. Also, kind of like uh, in terms of the kinds of stories that are allowed to be, have those kind of great lengths, uh, you know, I think there's a, the tendency now it's either going to be stuff that's full of spectacle or it's going to be, you know, like prestigious biopics. And I was thinking, uh, like, just the other week I watched um, Chantal Ackerman's uh, Jean Dielman, oh. uh, which is a kind of a great classic of art house cinema, which is three hours long entirely about the life of a belgian housewife and consists entirely of three days in her life all unfolding in more or less the same way and with the same pace but with small differences happening in each particular day and eventually on the third day things kind of unraveling for her as a result of this kind of hinted at spiraling out that the previous two days have hinted at and I think that's a really great and fascinating use of time because even though you're watching her go through largely the same things every day until you see her do something that's very, very different to what she's done before, the fact that the camera kind of... Also, the, the fact that Ackerman like used the static camera and everything like that, mm. you're watching... You're being forced to kind of sit and experience her life in much the same way that she does. And uh, I think that's a really fascinating use of a long-running time, which doesn't feel like they're overloading, like that Ackerman is overloading the story with incident or trying to create a sense of worthiness. It is more using time to, like, envelop the viewer. Completely, because you're condensing a day into an hour, just mm. about. So... I don't know the exact ratio, but you've got, you know, the bits that will filter out of 24 hours into one are all bits that are significant in some way and that grip mm. you. And that's the most classic three act sort of structure that you can have in that film, yeah. which is establishing some sort of equilibrium, a turning point, something changing. And then you, you see a complete journey there, even if it doesn't have the resolution that maybe more classic narratives have. Yeah, I think... One of the things I find really uh, not not kind of like disheartening about the way that modern movies use their running time is that like a movie like uh, John Dalman, it's a very intimate character study that takes a very, very long time, but it rewards you for 
spending that time with that character and getting to see her life and to kind of get a sense of why she would do the thing that she does at the end of the movie where uh, 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 and like there doesn't seem to be that sense that you can do that this much nowadays if you do tell like an intimate character study movies don't really take their time with it it's viewed as more like if you look at something like um the Terence Davis movie from last year, A Quiet Passion, about yeah, Emily Dickinson, which is a great movie. But I love it, yeah. It's it wraps up fairly quickly, and that's the sort of movie where you think, I'm glad that it is the length that it is, but boy, I could have spent a lot of time with Cynthia Nixon being kind of like great and and really exploring her particular view of the world. But isn't it better to come away wanting more? than leaving feeling, I don't know, bloated is the only way that I can say, like bloated and bored. You're just like, oh gosh, just stuck in there and you just never seem to go and... Yeah, I guess that that certainly is true. But I I also do feel like that's an idea I would like to see more filmmakers take, the idea that, you know, if you're, you're going to take a, 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 a intimate story and really kind of explore it. I think you, you see, like, um, Scorsese kind of did that with Silence the other year, which is a very focused story about, you know, two priests going through Japan uh, uh, and all about their particular struggles with their own faith, which he really, you know, gets the most out of the two-hour, two, two-and-a-half-hour running time there in a way that, you know is not the case with, say, The Departed, which is about the same length, but feels bloated. Feels like, oh, this movie, this kind of, like, fun, enjoyable, but also kind of trashy cop drama could have been, like, wrapped up in two hours instead of being allowed to to to, to spread out in the way that it does. And I think that's something to do with the pace of the time that he's working mm. with. Like, in, in Silence, everything took time. Whereas yeah. in The Departed, everything, the pace of life is is faster, whether he likes it or not, and that doesn't quite come round. Yeah, I think that, that also ties it back into the interminableness of the Transformers movies. Like, it's not just that those movies are long, it's that they are relentless, in that yeah. they are constantly assaulting you with imagery and incidents and as they go on, you just kind of keep finding yourself thinking, God, like this would be so much more endurable at a shorter running time and you wouldn't lose anything in terms of like character or plot. At all. And I think there is kind of that like value for your buck idea. Mm -hmm. It's like you will sit there and, you know, it's not, I don't know anyone who looks at films and is like, I'm going to get the most from my money. Hmm. But I do think that there is something somewhere where they're like, oh, well, you know, more is more is better. Longer is better. And it and it just isn't necessarily. I think it, it's totally about what suits your story. What are you trying to tell? Mm. What's the time scale that you're talking about within the world of the story that you're doing? And then and then go from there, because I think, you know, there are plenty of 90 minute films where I've just felt it is far too abrupt. Yeah. I, I think it seems almost like a replay of what you saw in the 1960s and the 50s where television kind of was in its ascendancy. And so to combat that, you had all of these movies which were made in kind of like 
cinemascope and everything had to be widescreen and every story had to be told on a great canvas and had to you know run a huge length of time because they were saying you know you can't get this at home you have to go to the cinema to see it and you got a lot of movies that were really really great out of that approach you know you got uh, uh, Lawrence of Arabia and a lot of uh, David Lean's other epics and things like that and there's a whole slew of these kind of huge movies made on a scale that really has been very rarely seen since but at the same time you know you get a lot of bloated movies you know you get something like a Doctor Doolittle which is like a very very tedious musical that is stretched out to a huge length because they're like oh we're going to release this as a roadshow version and there's going to be an interval and everything and even when they realized that that would not work and they cut it down it was still too long uh, and I think that that is a factor in why a lot of movies in the recent past have got longer is that there's that sense that you need to provide people with something that feels, like you say, worth worth their buck of, you know, going out for the evening and watching something in a physical space as opposed to watching something on Netflix, you know. You've either got to provide people with something they've never seen before and which means that they want to rush out and see it straight away or just provide people with a lot of stuff that makes them feel as if, okay, that was that was time and money well spent. Some kind of spectacle, yeah. And I think the thing is, is that what draws me to the cinema is something that I'm like, this experience is, will be better in the cinema. Like, that's what I did with Arrival. I was like, I want to watch Arrival and I mm. want to see it in the cinema because I think that's really important. I had no concept of its length and it didn't feel long to me. You know what film yeah. that I keep watching that I still absolutely love but feels really long, whereas in my head it's much tighter, is Mrs. Doubtfire. Right, Okay. How long is Mrs. Doubtfire? I, let me find the exact running time. Because I think the thing about Mrs. Doubtfire is that, and it's and it's an interesting example because I think it's more of a, um, it's just over two hours. And mm. I think it's more of a trying to mash two genres together because it is yeah. zany comedy caper matched with heartbreaking family drama. Mm. there's so many threads in it but towards the end i think i think the last act like takes a long time after a really tight premise and setup and you've got so much established in terms of the career and the family and the divorce and the mm. relationships and the characters like you know who all of them are but towards the end i'm just like oh god i, I love everyone but i still wish this would end <laughs> And there's so much extra material from it as well that didn't make the final cut. But for something that's ostensibly seen as a family film, it's really long. I, I remember, like, years and years ago, uh, I, I had a similar experience re-watching Star Wars because it had been a very long time since I'd watched the original Star Wars. And in my head, that movie was, like, 90 minutes long. Yeah. And when you watch it, it's two hours. Yeah. And it it doesn't feel... Like, it goes by at a hell of a pace, you know. It's a really well-structured and well-edited, in particular, movie that, that knows how to kind of just jump along from plot point to plot point without overstaying its welcome at any point. But it's one of those ones where it is so effective at telling a story quickly that you don't think that it's massively long. And I feel like that is the key to 
making a long or at least longish movie is that you want people to walk away thinking, wow, that didn't feel X number of minutes long. Yeah. They felt like they could, they, they got lost in it. Or, you know, you make something on a huge scale where it feels like really enveloping, like, like a Lawrence of Arabia where you know it's a long movie and it feels like a long movie, but you really feel as if you have gone on a journey with, uh, with Peter O'Toole and uh, Omar Sharif and everyone. Because that's, that's like the kind of classic Hollywood meaning of an epic, wasn't mm. it? Like it was epic in scale in every sense. It was going to be a really long film. And I used to love stuff like uh, it because the thing that Gone with the Wind, the first time I saw it was on Turner Classic Movies. And that was mm. half my day, which was yeah. great. But, you know, it didn't feel long. You realized, oh, we're, we're going through a lot of time, but everything engaged you. There was nothing that was fluff or filler. Everything had a purpose and you were moving towards something and you didn't know where it was going to go. And that was really exciting. Mm, yeah. I'm trying to think of other examples of movies that, like, I th- there's there's a kind of a whole genre of movie that are just like Sunday afternoon movies where oh my God, totally. they are long, they feel long, but you kind of put them on and you kind of think, well, this is going to be a nice thing to just kind of like relax to. So something like The Sound of Music is a good example of that. You know, that is a that is a, a deceptively long movie. Deceptively but... long, but really, you know, in terms of, again, the actual timescale within the film that it covers, it covers a lot in a relatively short space of time in terms of the ratio. And I think at that time that, that stuff like The Sound of Music and Lawrence of Arabia, the time that all those films were coming out, what else were you going to do? Maybe mm. if you were watching it at that time in the cinema, you know, there wasn't anything else really available and you were more used to long form kind of stuff. I always think of stuff like uh, Funny Girl, Barbara oh, yeah. Streisand. Barbara Streisand's films, yeah. often really long. Love them though, don't get me wrong. But Funny Girl, Funny Lady, um, Hello Dolly, really big, full studio, epic Mary Poppins is always longer than I remember it being as well, again, for a kid's film, but it's fantastic if, in many ways, but particularly for the suffragettes. Yeah, I think most musicals end up being longer than you would think because it's just, you just having to cram in the numbers and if they are, uh, if there's like 10 musical numbers in a movie... Uh, then it's kind of hard to work them in and also have like the plot stuff around it as well and keep it down to like a reasonable length like that's one of the the things that I always admire about singing in the rain which is only like an hour and 45 minutes long Mm. but zooms by and manages to integrate a lot of its song uh song uh, it's a lot of its musical numbers into the plot and kind of then gives itself enough room for like gene uh, uh gene kelly's whole like broadway ballet in the middle broadway yeah. melody that's what it's called yeah and i think like the other thing about if you look at the early history of cinema it was basically recording theater so you have mm. a lot of stage shows and things that would traditionally have an intermission maybe even in the theater and we have advert breaks now on certain channels but on a dvd you don't really don't really have that option unless you pause it yourself like that entertainment was generally you'd have breaks or you weren't necessarily expected to engage in it as directly as I think you are now Mm. and 
the fact that you used to have a B movie and an A movie. You'd have yes. a full afternoon. And I think, and I know you, Matt, and I discussed this in terms of having a short and then a feature, which is really lovely. And it's odd that it's not done across the board other than like, you know, Pixar is the one known to do it the most across the world, I think, in terms of a short and then a feature. But that's how it always used to be. And that's the amazing mm. thing about watching a short film as well, where you can watch a film that's seven minutes long and just covers everything. Because it's it fits the elements of the story that it's trying to tell. Yeah, and I think it's also really fascinating when you see a short film that then gets expanded into a feature like oh, if you yeah. look at something like more recently the movie mama or mama which started as an incredibly unnerving short film that was only like five or six minutes yeah, long so i think yeah. I, I saw it at celluloid screams like a couple of years before the feature version came out and it's incredibly moody and effective and benefits from being short because it doesn't really have to resolve anything it just has to terrify you and then the feature version is pretty good but it doesn't have that uh, ability to just be kind of like uh, uh, to to re- maintain an air of ambiguity in quite the same way, and it has to handle a lot more of kind of like character and plot developments in a way that ultimately detracts a little bit from the sheer terror of the show. Or uh, another one, of course, would be something like Wes Anderson, like the original version of Bottle Rocket that he and Owen Wilson made, which is like a very short, sharp, uh, 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 black and white movie that is clearly just them going into a friend's house and like planning out a, a robbery, like the, the main, the characters going into someone's house and planning out a robbery. And it's all incredibly sharp and quick and feels very, very different to what they would then do when they expanded it into a feature, even though the feature maintains the sense of humor, the, the fact that they are, taking this idea and being forced to condense it down to only a couple of minutes means that the short feels a lot more kind of crackly and energetic. And it's the sort of short where you watch it and you think, okay, I can totally see why these guys, you know, were, came to the attention of someone like James L. Brooks, who then helps them get the movie made. But when you watch the feature, you think, okay, this is pretty good, but it doesn't have quite the same energy of the short because they're having to stretch it out and often i think the the function of short films generally in the industry is to have a proof of concept yeah and you'll if you look at the baftas over the past 10 years often the best short film then gets made into a feature but it's a reverse engineering process where somebody already has a feature distills a scene to make a short and then is Mm. able to go back if you if you kind of just try and expand a feature from a short, it you get that watered down stretch out effect. Whereas if you actually distill a feature into a short, you can do a lot in a handful of scenes. Yeah, you definitely see that in something like uh, the original short for Saw, which is, if I remember correctly, I think it's mainly like the opening couple of scenes of what ended up being the feature version of Saw. And it's really effective and gory and you know really sells the concept well and you can say okay yep can completely see why this became a long-running multimedia franchise uh, because it's it's such an effective idea and they have depicted it so well 
but the way in which that franchise eventually kind of like spiraled out and went into incredibly like weird and labyrinthine plotting maybe points to the idea why the idea probably couldn't be sustained for quite as long as they did maybe it only really sustained itself for that initial short and most of the first movie it's like a chewing it's like a piece of chewing gum Mm. you can only chew it for so long and it's fresh like you keep chewing it and i think that's it like successful shorts are amazing bits of chewing gum and you come away refreshed but then if it if it then tips over into something longer you're just like what is this tasteless tap mm. that's that's in my mouth but it's interesting because i think like that if my memory serves me correctly then the short for saw is in real time yes and i think there's something really interesting and the thing that always strikes me about um Richard Linklater, for example. Mm. So much of his films are essentially about time and perception and that slightly kind of like hits blunt and, oh, <laughs> dude, like time and the universe and stuff kind of way. But I, I do have like a deep fondness for his films, but I can barely watch Before Sunset now because I right. just find I, it really it sticks in my craw because I'm all cynical now. Uh, rather than when I watched it initially as a, a lovelorn teen. But the thing, I, I will never not find... Um, oh, sorry, no, Before Sunrise. Before Sunset is the beautiful one. Before Sunset is, yeah. real, is real time. You were there mm-hmm. with them. And it's that strange juxtaposition of having, quote-unquote, lost decades. They now have an hour and yeah. a half together. And you, and you move through that with them. You live through that with them. And then a few years later you see them in before midnight and and you see them in a different way and it's not real time but it is over a course of like a short holiday but for me before sunset is the absolute perfect kind of balance because there's so much yearning they they are trying Mm. to live all of the years that they have lost with each other in that very short space of time so everything's just like pouring with meaning and angst and yearning which makes it such a gripping mm. watch and you don't know if they're going to end up together. You still, at the end, you're like, well, I guess kind of maybe, but you look at boyhood, which was in terms of chronological production shot over, <laughs> over a decade, like 12 years was mm. boyhood. Yes. And then watching it, you're like, okay, yeah. Like boy, boyhood at no point to me felt over long. I think my issues with boyhood have nothing to do with its running time at all and i think that's a really interesting achievement to be able to come to the end of shooting over 12 years where you see the protagonist actually grow from a boy into a young man Mm. and then be able to come to the end of it and make something that's still a very coherent if massively flawed for other reasons film is impressive yeah i think it's it's interesting to think that Linklater is not someone who generally makes very long movies. Like uh, before Sunset, which we, we were just talking about, runs at like 80 minutes, which is like yeah. perfect. Like doesn't need to be a second longer than that to be to, to get its its story across. Uh, uh, and the the one time that he does make a somewhat long movie, although I think Boyhood is still not as long as uh, other movies we've mentioned that don't have a reason to justify being as long as they are he did it with like the bing the biggest kind of the biggest swing of his career of saying okay i'm going to commit to this idea in like 2001 
of making a movie over the next 12 years and having no idea as he was going along and doing it if it was going to amount to anything at the end of it other than a lot of home movies, uh, which uh, is kind of what, in the word, the kind of least charitable interpretation of that movie would be what it is. I mean, I, I quite like Boyhood, but there is certainly a version of it that is like a lot worse because it is just kind of aimless noodling of all of these scenes shot over a very long period of time that attains a level of significance because of how it was made. Yes. It's less about the story on screen and more of the story of how it got onto the screen, which I mm. have a little bit of issue with. Um, sure. Because I think, I mean, stories can be interesting, as in the meta story of how it got there, definitely. But if that's not serving and ultimately it's still the story on screen that should be centre forward, then... Yeah, it's just kind of a shame. Mm, yeah, because when you like look 10, 15 years in the future, when the context of how the movie was made kind of becomes a little fuzzier for future film fans, and also you know going even further, like 50 years, 100 years, then they're just left with the movie. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if Boyhood will stand up as a work of storytelling to those future viewers. Whereas, like, I, I watch it, I think, okay, I recognise a lot of my own experiences. Because even though I'm a little older than the character in the movie, like, there's a lot of overlap with, like, my own childhood that I can kind of read into it. Whereas I don't feel like kids even, like, a, a, a kid who's, like, someone who's, like, six years or old now, if they watch Boyhood in 12 years' time, if they will really kind of recognise much of themselves in that story. Yeah, uh, I mean, test of time Yeah, in every sense. Yeah, or, or maybe, like, it'll become a, a, a beloved classic, but, like, it's it's always hard to tell with these things. But it definitely feels like one that is, like, a, a very... It's kind of a very big achievement, but maybe not necessarily the best movie. Though in terms of, like movies made in the 2010s that have a much more fascinating backstory than how than a story of how of that they're actually telling it's a lot better than say escape from tomorrow which is a a dreadful movie oh that, see i i have a, is... i have such a soft spot for escape from tomorrow uh yeah i i rewatched it i watched it the first time and kind of thought all right it's obviously very interesting how they made it all in secret but then i rewatched it like not too recently and i thought oh yeah this once you take away... That's all it's got. Yeah, that's kind of like the only thing it's got. Everything else just kind of feels really kind of like slapdash and unpleasant. Yeah. Uh, and also kind of has like a... There's a certain kind of like teenage sneering quality to it, which uh, I don't know, I just I think I have less time for Yeah. Uh, in my 30s than, than <laughs> I did when I was younger. That's interesting. I need to watch it again because I remember the first time I watched it, I, it didn't like... It felt quite meditative in a nightmarish mm. sort of way, which I appreciated. But I, I will need to give it another go. But I think it felt very different from what I expected. And I was just thinking there, talking about Boyhood, the 400 blows, which mm. feels just that much more transcendent. Like, none, none of us have been, as far as I'm aware, a young boy growing up in France. In the 50s yes, and 60s. that's true. And yet, for some reason, it seems to tap into something that much more 
Universal than Boyhood did. I don't know. I th- I, th- I think Boyhood's not really looking to kind of create this Universal because the Four Hundred Blows I think is more about individual against authority, which is a very yeah French concept that travels very well across the world. Whereas Boyhood, I think the issue for Boyhood with me is that it's for me that film should be called Motherhood or Parenthood, mm. like your protagonist your boy is so passive yeah that that's what makes it feel long it's not that it's over his span of 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 growing up as an adult it's just that he has so little to do in it he acts so little in it and and you're just observing through him which is frustrating for me and that's what disengages me from it and that's what makes it feel longer and then boring Mm. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of the story that is being told of, you know, the young boy's life kind of feels very basic in terms yeah. of, like, the kind of stories that have been told about, like, coming-of-age stories and about young men and and young American men in particular. Like, there's not a huge amount to it that feels that specific other than, like, the fact that it takes place in... Texas and you know like it is drawing upon real life experiences it feels very weirdly generic whereas if the story had been more focused on Patricia Arquette's character a you would have had someone who was like a professional actor when they started which for you know like L.R. Coltrane I think his name is like when he started obviously he wasn't a professional actor; he was a very young child um if it was more about her viewing the experience of the story through her eyes then you would probably get something that felt very very different because there aren't really that many stories about motherhood that do cover in such kind of minute detail that length of time and although she like the the scene in which she kind of like talks about you know him leaving home and her thinking about what she has now in her life and things like that it's a, it's a very well played scene but it kind of feels less impactful than it would have been if you know she had been the main character and maybe we had spent a little more time developing her emotional journey everything as opposed to him kind of yeah observing it kind of passively, as she said like every everything that she does is totally gripping and and Patricia Arquette won that Oscar completely deservedly mm-hmm. but it's a serious issue when your uh your main character is less interesting than a supporting character i think that means your stories the leverage is on the wrong character entirely i'll tell you what film i remember watching in the cinema that i had no sense of how long it was it was just so intense that every moment Mm. felt kind of agonizing which is enter the void oh yeah yeah which is not a long film but my god in terms of like (laughs) your endurance because i i thought i was going to be sick in the first 20 minutes because of the character blinking because when Mm. your protagonist is still alive and has eyes to blink that constant blinking just made me feel so sick um and that was that was a ride. It really was. And at the end of it, I just came out like utterly, utterly shaken by what I'd just been on. And I had no sense of time. But then you look at things like uh, Synecdoche, New York, which is one of my favorite mm. films ever. And that 
spans a huge amount of time and yet has a great sense of pace to it but that's it I think we just keep sort of you know as long as you know what you're trying to say you know when you've said it yeah you don't need to keep repeating yourself I think is is what you'd hope for and the thing that going back ever so slightly to what we were saying about the kind of your your B movie and your A movie, your short and your feature. I've always enjoyed the openings of Tarantino films more than I have the rest of the film. I think Tarantino yeah, he's very good is, out the gates. I, I think, yeah, right. I think he's the best short filmmaker and yet he just tacks on a feature at the end, which I can sort of do without. <laughs> Like the, the opening of Inglorious Bastards, I think, is absolutely incredible. Mm. And then it just sort of can actually function perfectly on its own. And that is one as well, in, even though obviously it's only a smart of a much larger story and a much longer story. That's a, a sequence that really doesn't feel as long as it is, because I think it's like 25 or 30 minutes, maybe even longer. But Oh my God, it doesn't so, feel like that at all. It's so brilliantly paced. And it feels so kind of effortlessly put together and it moves at this pace that kind of is is determined by Christoph, Christoph Waltz's cadence. Like he has a very calm, languid way of talking, even as he's talking about terrible things that he has done and that he is going to do, that the movie kind of has to meet that. And, and he's such a compelling presence and he's such a compelling storyteller that you really do feel as if you are kind of in the hands of, of a master storyteller, whether or not that is Hans Lander or Quentin Tarantino. Like, it doesn't ever feel rushed or like it's going on too long. It just feels perfect. And then the rest of the movie is, is whatever. But that opening segment is so... Uh, endlessly rewatchable and i totally and i think the opening segment is so powerful because the person that you're with is the most sympathetic and vulnerable person in that which is the family that's trying to survive and not get caught mm. you're not on the side of the psychopath you're not on the side of the you know are we the baddies you're not you're not there yeah. you 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 are so tense because you know exactly where that scene is you know whose side you're on and that is the people who are like are these the last moments of my life and it's that yeah. kind of experience that people talk about with near near-death experiences where their entire life flashes before their eyes mm. and i think that's the sensation that you get like your entire life in 30 minutes is not long at all yeah yeah it's 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 pretty uh, amazing and has kind of i guess it kind of set a bad uh, a bad precedent for the, the like the next decade of tarantino's career because he's never quite <laughs> managed that no. uh, again like that's oh, such no. an uh, a great achievement it's kind of so overawing that like the rest of inglorious bastards couldn't match up to it and like certainly the the two movies he's made since which do have their their kind of like their pleasures to them uh and like the hateful eight in particular is like feels like a particularly knotty movie that you can i've seen a lot of people write very long articles about it basically explaining like the current situation of america through the prism of the hateful eight um 
it still doesn't quite match the, the, the brilliance and the intensity and the terror of the opening of Inglourious Bastards. And I think, you know, we discuss when when you talk like uh, you talk to people casually about like, oh, how was that film you saw? You say, well, it had its moments. Mm. And that's it. Your film should entirely be made of moments. To paraphrase Dogma mm-hmm. and uh, Loki and Bartleby talking to the nun, life is just a series of moments and film should be no different. Mm. Yeah, you definitely shouldn't walk away thinking like, oh, there was like five or six highlights spread amongst stuff that you just instantly forget. Yeah. And we end this episode as we end all of our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about uh, a piece of art that we've enjoyed and that we think you listeners will enjoy as as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Dietland. I fucking love Mm. it. So you mentioned Annihilation earlier, and I went into both with that sort of trepidation of I read the book, absolutely loved the book, felt quite snobbish and superior in terms of, oh, well, is it going to be as good as the book? They're their own things. They're some of the best adaptations I have seen where it honours the spirit of the book but makes the film adaptation its own thing. It's not um, beholden to the book at all, but it manages to carry the spirit and then makes it suit the medium. And Dietland, the book by uh, Sarah Walker, is absolutely incredible. And then I'm just loving that Martin Oxen, who helmed Unreal, has just made this incredibly vivid, psychedelic, funny, moving, strained, sad, incredibly timely piece of television. Episode every Tuesday on Amazon Prime. I cannot recommend it enough. Great. Uh, I'm going to recommend, in kind of stark contrast to some of the, the movies we're talking about, which maybe overstay their welcome, I'm going to recommend... Uh, a TV series that can be watched in pretty much the running time of a single 90-minute movie. It's Adult Swim TV show called Joe Pera Talks With You. Now, uh, in it's it's a hard show to describe. I mean, the title kind of tells you all you need to know about what the premise is, which is that this stand-up comedian called Joe Pera playing a character called Joe Pera, who is a school, I believe a school music teacher, who is a choir teacher specifically, who is... Uh, is of kind of indeterminate age. Joe Pera himself is 30, but his demeanour suggests he could be up to 97 years old. Like, he is very calm, and he has this kind of really slow Midwestern drawl, and he's very earnest. He's very funny, but he's very, very earnest in what he talks about, and each episode tackles broadly a different subject. Like, the first one is about iron, in which he talks about the Upper Peninsula of... Uh, of Michigan where he lives but then it gets derailed when midway through the show he discovers that someone has accidentally put up a for sale sign outside of his house and people have come (laughs) for an open house and he has to show them around Uh, and uh, there's a wonderful line where he looks out sees the sign is there and he just kind of like says to himself quietly well it's I didn't put it there but I must honor it uh which I think gives you a kind of a sense of his personality. He's just like a very gentle man who's just kind of like going through life, talking to people and about things that he's passionate about. And the absolute highlight of the run of the first series, which has just, just ended, 
is uh, an episode called Joe Pera reads the church announcements where it starts off with him standing up at the front of the church reading the the kind of like the church bulletin and then he decide he interrupts himself halfway through to ask people if anyone has ever heard of the who and <laughs> then details his experience having just heard the song Barbara O'Reilly for the first time uh, and the whole show is just this really beautiful distillation of the experience of discovering a piece of art that deeply like moves and touches you and speaks to you in a way that I don't think many other TV shows or movies I've seen manage uh, and it's 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 really really wonderful you can also find lots of Joe Perra's stand-up bits on YouTube and I really recommend checking them out because they are uh, indelibly strange and weird and give a good sense of the the overall tone of the show which I found to be just a wonderful panacea of, uh, of of entertainment over the last couple of weeks. I have to say if your recommendation didn't sell anyone enough because it's definitely sold me on it I'm looking at the Google overview just now which mm-hmm. reads a teacher in Michigan's Upper Peninsula explores subject matters such as pancakes, blueberries, eggs, toast, sausage, bacon, English muffins, <laughs> coffee, orange juice, maple syrup, waffles, cornbread, and strawberries. So yeah, we all need to watch this right now, guys, I think is uh, is what we're trying to say. Yep, absolutely. Thank you, Emily, for coming on the show again. Have you got anything you would like to plug to our listeners? Oh, well, yes, uh, I am still producing the history podcast past tense about times in the past that mm-hmm. were tense one uh, sort of a little bit of a research hiatus just now but we've got one more episode coming of volume one and then we'll have another little research break and then we will get into volume two but now is the time to start catching up and begin with volume one if you haven't already um and we are focusing on the british civil wars this series so please join us we'd love you to be on board Yep, everyone should check out Past Tense. It's a it's a really wonderful show. Oh, Ed, you're a star. I'll give you that fifty bucks later. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Finally, this this show is paying off. Um, <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on Stitcher, Player, Player FM, iTunes, and uh, leave us a review and uh, you know recommend us to your friends. It's the best way for us to grow our audience. We are also on Facebook and Twitter. We are at SRS underscore Podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Oh, and bye from me. Bye.